Hey, it's Justin, and I have a big announcement and personal invitation for you. This May, we're inviting a small group of people to Austin to learn how to grow their wealth tax-free and get access to some of my personal friends and experts in the industry. We did something similar last year, and the feedback was incredible, so we set aside a few tickets for non-Mastermind members to join us for this event. You'll spend some time learning from Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows, and one of my favorite books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor Podcast, who will share with you how to find fulfillment in success. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. Plus, when you register, you'll have the opportunity to attend a one-day course the day before on vetting deals. If you want to learn our process so that you can make great decisions, there's no better teacher than Hans Box. This is our most requested topic, and it'll be an exceptional course. Seats for the course and the one-day event are limited, so if you're interested, please grab your ticket today. I always say you're just one connection, one decision, and one strategy away from true freedom, and I look forward to helping you on your journey. Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live or click the link around this video and secure your ticket now before we sell out. Hope to see you in Austin this May. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm speaking with my friend Craig Kessler. Craig is the COO of a multi-million dollar company, Top Golf, which has over 60 venues across the U.S. and nearly 20,000 associates. His business has grown like wildfire thanks to a world-class team. Before he joined Top Golf, he cultivated extensive experience in the world of private equity, which helped him prepare to serve as one of the youngest C-suite executives in the country. In Craig's new book, The Dad Advice Project, he collects wisdom, advice, and letters from 42 of his close friends on how to be a better dad. It's a stunning collection and a powerful behind-the-scenes look at raising a family and being a great father. Today, Craig and I talk about what happens when you fall in love with the business you've invested in, what Craig learned when he asked his friends for dad advice, and the small things that we can do every day to make the world a better place as we think about legacy. 
One more thing before we get to today's interview. Have you subscribed to our YouTube page? This is a great place to find bite-sized clips taken from our full-length interviews. Get the best moments and investment tips from each of our past guests by visiting justindonald.com forward slash YouTube. And be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube so you get notified whenever we release new content. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Craig Kessler. Well, Craig, I am so excited to get some time here. You and I visited a while back, and it's really cool how we met. We have a, a mutual friend in Jeff Woods, and he said, you guys have to meet up. You guys are going to just hit it off, and I'm so glad that we did. And I've been looking forward to this time, so welcome to the show. Justin, it's good to be here. And like you, I'm very grateful our good friend Jeff Woods connected us. Well, he is definitely just a bundle of energy and joy. And so I'm very pleased. I was on his podcast a while back, The One Thing, and they just do such incredible work. And so I know anytime I get a recommendation from him, it's always going to be a good one. So, And it has been. I'm so thrilled about getting to know you and learning your story and seeing all the moves you're making to positively impact and change the world. Well, I appreciate it. Let's jump in. Cool. Love it. Well, first and foremost... I'm curious kind of how you got to where you are today. You're a very successful guy. You're very young to be running a massive multi-million, multi-billion probably dollar company as COO with, with Top Golf. And by the way, I love Top Golf. We just went to the one in Vegas and uh, we were there for one of my buddies just his well, it was supposed to be his 40th birthday, my buddy John Rulin. And we were celebrating that, but COVID kind of put us a year off. So it was his 41st birthday. <laughs> and we just had an incredible time at your, I would call it one of the nicest, if not the nicest one I've ever been to with swimming pools and hot tubs and the whole nine yards. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible spot. So I just wanted to say bravo. What a great concept. I love going. I love playing. I'm very competitive. It's just wonderful. Well, thanks, Justin. First of all, for visiting, for having a good time. Top Golf Las Vegas, it is definitely our flagship venue and, and we're proud of it. To answer your question, how did it all come to be? I, I think, I don't think, I know it's a, a massive team effort to get to where we are. Top Golf has over 60 venues across the US, nearly 20,000 associates. We're growing like wildfire, both domestically and abroad. And this is an absolute world-class team that's, that's turned the business into what it's become. That's great. And so you've been growing a lot here recently, but I want to know how you even got into a point to grow with the company. Like, How did you get your foot in the door? Yeah, I'll give you the 30-second backstory. Truth be told, you know, born and raised in San Diego, went to college in Washington, D.C., wanting to be president of the United States. And within like three weeks in D.C., I wanted nothing to do with politics and really haven't looked back ever since. And towards the end of college, I had a choice between two different job offers. The first was to be a, a movie producer, and the second was to go into consulting. And I flipped a coin. I really couldn't decide. So I, I flipped a coin and it landed on the movie producer side. But truth be told, and I think it's probably because I came or come from a family that didn't have a whole lot, and I was very risk averse, I found myself rooting for the coin to land on the business side. So I went with my gut 
and uh, ended up joining a consulting firm, uh, moved around the world for a handful of years and eventually found myself in private equity. And it was an unbelievable Navy SEAL type boot camp in business, learning how to evaluate businesses and, and help them grow. And one thing led to another. And over the course of a 10 year or so career, I, I wound up at Top Golf and I've been here for almost five years now. That's fantastic. And so this world of private equity is kind of a whole nother world. And I think most people don't recognize or understand even what that is or what that means. I would love for you to elaborate because people always talk about PE or private equity or, you know, my company just got bought up by a PE firm. I'd love to hear your explanation of what that is being an insider. Here's the simplest way I can describe it. I would imagine most of your listeners are familiar with the concept of flipping houses. So when you flip a house, there's really three things you do. You buy a house, you make it better, and then you sell it. And hopefully you make a little bit of money along the way. Private equity is the exact same thing as flipping houses, except it's companies we're dealing with instead of homes. So you buy a business, you make it better, and then ultimately you sell it, hopefully for a profit. And, and my job, I work for two different private equity firms, KKR and Providence Equity. My job was to do the first two of those three buckets, find good companies and make them better. That's awesome. And so in the whole big picture scheme of things, I just want to kind of lay out for our audience, you've got the early round investors, like your angel investors who invest in seed rounds and they don't invest as much and it's pre-revenue generally. It's like super early stage. Sometimes it's like the concept isn't even proven yet. Yep. And then you kind of get into the world of a VC, venture capital, and they don't like seed as much. They're more on kind of the series A side or proven track record, something, whatever you think should happen is already starting to happen. There's some revenue coming in, et cetera. And then the next stage is kind of private equity where there is a track record, there's profitability, everything is known and they want to come in and they want a 10X or greater on that. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts around that based on kind of how I laid it out. I think you gave a great summary. The only thing I'd add is... As you move up the value chain from angel to venture capital to private equity, the risk comes down and the returns also come down. So it's sort of like the best analogy I could think of is think about playing roulette at a casino. If you put $5 on red or $5 on black and you effectively are betting on half the numbers on the table, the payout's only two to one. But if you bet on a number, you pick 31 because that's your lucky number and it hits the payouts 35 to one. So the more risk you take, the more reward you should expect in return. The caveat is you got to be comfortable with losing because the riskier bets don't always pay off. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and that's a really good elaborating on kind of what it looks like. And yeah, it is riskier on the seed stage. And I know private equity doesn't have as much of an appetite for that risk. They love cash flow. They love profitability and they want to pay, you know, and generally they're they're pretty my experience has been that PE firms are pretty generous in their valuations because they know what they can get it to. So, you're working for a couple of different PE firms. When did you decide to make the leap or or were, you know, 
I guess, was there a connection from the firm you were with with someone in the C-suite at Top Golf, or what did that look like? Yeah, back to your question from earlier, Craig, how'd you end up where you are? One of the answers is a whole lot of luck. And the truth is, when I was working at a, one of the PE firms I mentioned before, Providence Equity, Providence invested in Top Golf in early 2016. And my wife and I, our one son at the time, were living in New York City, where I was based. And my job for the next seven or eight months was to fly every week from New York to Dallas, where Top Golf is based, really just to help Top Golf grow. And I fell in love with the company. I fell in love with the leadership team. One thing led to another, and uh, they asked me to come on board as the chief operating officer around Thanksgiving 2016. That's cool. And so you've got to be one of the youngest people in the C-suite, and you find yourself running just a massive company. I mean, at first, was that a little intimidating and nerve-wracking, or did you just feel like you had the, the tools and the skills to be able to do it? I, I'm curious. I think, and it's hard to remember and be totally objective going back almost five years, but, but here's what I remember. I remember it being a tale of two cities. On the one hand, it was comfortable and welcoming because I had gotten to know the management team and the business for seven or eight months leading up to when this became official. And I, again, I fell in love with the team. I believed in the group's capabilities, and it was just a genuinely good group of people. So in that sense, it was great. On the flip side, you know, I was 31 years old at the time. There were, I don't know, five, six, 7,000 associates, and I had a lot to learn. And my head was spinning for days on end. And it took me a while to, I think, build trust with all of the right people so that we could work together collaboratively. And honestly, it took a while for them to have faith in me. And I think one of the things that I learned is if you show up, you work hard, you're humble, you ask questions as opposed to dictating a plan of attack, and people see you're leading with both your head and with your heart, it's amazing the doors that will open. And, and honestly, it's a journey I really wouldn't trade for anything. That's cool. Do you consider yourself in your role a culture creator? Or do you look at your role as like, hey, I just need to make sure operations are functioning and people are reporting where they need to and that no. the breakdown doesn't exist? Yeah, culture. What's the expression? Culture, strategy, and execution for breakfast. You know, it's really interesting. One of the things we did in the early days when I started was we studied remarkable concepts that are known for their culture and hospitality. Ritz-Carlton, Four Seasons, Southwest Airlines, Disney, and what we discovered is that the effectively the guest experience will never exceed the associate experience. And so we doubled down hard on culture. And what we ended up instituting is, and it was developed by the whole senior team with representation from frontline associates as well, something called our rally cry. And the rally cry is the one thing you think about every single day when you get out of bed, you put your uniform on and, and you take the playing field, which for us is a top golf venue. Our rally cry at Top Golf is that we create moments that matter for everyone. And the idea is your job is not to serve burgers and beer in a game of golf. It's to make a difference in people's lives. But where the rubber really met the road was when we, we didn't just talk about the rally cry. We actually empowered all today, 20,000 of our associates to do it. And I could sit here for hours with you and tell you story upon story of where 
hourly associates or salaried managers have gone above and beyond to make a difference in people's lives. And it doesn't just impact the guest. It actually makes our team proud to come to work every single day. That's awesome. Maybe the most important question I've asked yet, are you good at top golf? And if so, how good are you? What's your game of choice? <laughs> you know, I guess it depends who I'm playing against. I'm middle of the road. I tend to play two games at Top Golf. The first is our most commonly played game. It's called Top Golf, uh, creatively titled. The second is something new we have. It's Angry Birds. So most people don't know this, but you can come to Top Golf and play a game like Angry Birds. And whether you're a scratch golfer or my three-year-old son, it's a blast for everybody. Yeah, that's an incredible concept because you do not have to be good at Angry Birds Golf. Like all you have to do is put the ball in play and watch what happens because you basically have this simulation. You kind of look at a screen, you see this whole setup, and then you hit the ball towards using markers where different things are. And then you have these different wooden boxes that may fall and topple and break other parts. It's, it's just really fun. So it was the first time I'd ever played that when we were in Vegas and uh, it was a huge hit with our group. So nicely done on that. Well, thank you. I'll tell you a 20 second story. First time I ever visited Top Golf, it was a snowy day in January. We were in Alexandria, Virginia, home to the first Top Golf ever built in the US. And I remember walking in, or I should say, walking up to the building. I see a line around the block in the snow. We get inside for a bachelor party, and the bay next to us is a group of all women celebrating a bachelorette party. Now, up until this oh. point, I tried to get my wife to play golf 100 times, couldn't do it. But when I saw the bachelorette party, I thought, man, something magical is happening here. And what we've learned is that the brand has permission to do all sorts of things, including introducing a game like Angry Birds for, for golfers and ages of all types. That's so cool. Well, I'm guessing in the role that you've been in with the people that you've had exposure to, you've probably met some cool people along the way. And I'm curious if you've had any specific mentors or peers that have had a profound impact on you or the way that you think or maybe decisions that you're making now from the lens of long term, how is this going to impact and play out over several years? It's a great question. And it's honestly, it's hard to narrow the list down to just a couple of people because I think in this job, the life adventure and the people I've gotten to meet along the way, it wouldn't have happened were it not for Top Golf. And there have been leaders from members of our board to executives at Top Golf who've made a massive difference on my life. You know, if we if we look outside of Top Golf, there are a couple of people who have who've had a big difference. One guy in particular who I really look up to, Seth Waugh, who's the CEO of the PGA of America. Seth has this unbelievable way about him. It's a calming leadership style. He's always thinking about the future. Seth's the kind of guy you walk around with in an airport and people want to take pictures with him. But when you're next to him, you feel like you're the only person in the world that exists and have enormous respect for, for what I've learned from Seth. There are a couple of other guys who you won't recognize their names, but the way they've approached fatherhood, the way they've interacted with their own dads, I've learned a lot from the way they think about being a husband, a father, and a son. And were it not for those guys, I honestly, I don't think you and I would even be having the conversation today. 
Yeah. And, you know, this is a great segue because I'm so excited about this new chapter of your life, the impact that this is going to have because you have a new book coming out and it's just so applicable to so many, anyone who's a parent, anyone who's a dad. And I'd say it's not just limited to dads, but the book is called The Dad Advice Project, right? And I'd love to know, first off, a little bit about that. And secondly, kind of how it became what it is today. Like, how did it go from just this idea of getting advice to actually becoming a book? Happy to tell you the story. So it starts with a little bit of a a sad insight, but I promise there's a happy ending at the end of this. I don't have, and in the spirit of being vulnerable and open, a very close relationship with my dad. My wife and I have three boys, one, three, and five. And so we're in the thick of it. And I realized about two and a half years ago, not having my dad as a sounding board was a really big void. And so I emailed a handful of buddies and I asked them to write me a letter on how to be a good dad. That was it. And what I got back was incredible. It ranged from David Letterman style top 10 lists that were funny but thoughtful to letters they wrote their kids and and everything in between. And over the last two and a half years, this thing snowballed. And I ended up with 42 letters, all from guys who are close personal friends. And you know, it's, it's great you asked me the question about who's had an impact on my life. Without a doubt, these 42 guys have. And what ended up happening was I put all 42 letters together. A couple of guys asked me if they could read what the other guys had written. But it wasn't ever meant to be a book. It was really just a selfish question for me to crowdsource advice on how to be a better dad. Well, with some encouragement from a few of the guys, we, we approached a few different publishing houses. And interestingly, they all told me the same thing. They said, Craig, the difference between women and men is that women want advice from other women and dudes just want to hear the sound of their own voice. Nobody's going to read your book. But fortunately, we stumbled on one group that felt differently. And when they saw the list of authors who contributed, which I'm happy to share with you in a minute if you're interested, and they read the content, they said, holy cow, we've got to turn this into a book. That's exciting. And yes, of course, I want to hear the list of authors. And I just love that you basically have this, you chronicled all these great ideas and moments in time that people had had. You know, you crowdsource this with some of your brightest, most successful dads. And I love the book is theirs. It's like all of yours. It's a team effort. It's not just one person writing like, here's how great of a dad I am. It's, hey, look at the wisdom, the collective wisdom that we've gathered from all these smart people. You nailed it. I actually find you know a couple observations. One, the content for dads is thin. Two, the content that is available tends to be one person's point of view. I think three, if you're sick, you go to a doctor because a doctor's seen a case like yours 10,000 times before and has pattern recognition. None of that exists in fatherhood. So the idea of crowdsourcing this so that you could get 40 different guys and see the world through their eyes and maybe pick up on some patterns preemptively, it's been helpful to me. And, and I think the thing that's interesting is guys tend to be private, but when you ask most guys about fatherhood, it's amazing. Their shoulders drop, they exhale, and it's the one topic that's common ground for almost all dads. And what you'll see when you open the book is that all these guys are friends of mine, and they, they range from people you've never heard of who are in unbelievable business and civic leadership roles across the world to a bunch of guys you're familiar with. So the foreword's written by George Tenet, the former CIA director, and 
We've got athletes like Davis Love III and Adam Wainwright, the pitcher for the Cardinals, and TV personalities like Mark Rolfing and Noda Begay. And I'll tell you, it was so powerful to see these guys get vulnerable and give you a behind-the-scenes look to what it was like for them raising their kids. That's incredible. And you hit the nail on the head with the fact that there's not necessarily a ton of books out there for dads. And I look for these. Like This is a topic that I read on on my bookshelf right behind me. I have several of these books and I'm always looking for really good books. And so I'm thrilled that you have just such a great resource, but also from you know men that are choosing to be really vulnerable. And the, I think the issue that a lot of dads have, and, and maybe you can relate to this. I know that this is true in my life. When we think about being a dad and we think about the decisions that we have to make, sometimes it's easier to just work or try to build the business or try to do things in work mode because we're good at it. It's familiar. We've been doing it for a decade or two or three or more versus the dad thing. This is newer. We don't know it as well. The default isn't this life of experience. And so I find that, like for me, I have to show up very intentionally because if I'm unintentional, if, I, if I'm just letting my subconscious lead me, I'm always just going to kind of veer towards the things that I know well, the things that I'm good at, business versus showing up intentionally for my family. It's probably the theme talked about more than almost any other in the book. And finding that balance is hard. Here's what's interesting. If you go all the way back to purpose, and like, what's our purpose for being here on this earth? What's your purpose as an individual? We're all going to have our own answers to that question. But what I can almost guarantee is that every single person will have an element of wanting to find joy and happiness in life. And what I find fascinating is that for many people, if you drop the ball on family and parenthood and all those sorts of things, and you focus on the short-term wins around work, you sort of miss the point if purpose is sort of your North Star or guiding light. And by the way, let's be real. There are times where all of us need to drop those things because work will come first. The question is really about the patterns and behaviors we develop over time. And it's a trap. If we get sucked into the whirlwind too much, it's, it's very hard to undo you know, a reputation you've built with your kids or your spouse. Yeah. And it becomes a routine. It becomes a habit. So you got to be really careful how you're spending that time and what decisions you make. When do you choose work over family? When is family over work? You know, I'm part of a dad's group that I believe you're familiar with, Front Row Dads, that yep. uh, one of my closest friends in the world, John Roman, started. And I'm the hugest fan. And one of the things that we talk about, and, and he's going to be on our episode for Father's Day, but one of the things that we talk about in that group is that we're family men first, businessmen second. And I love just how that, just that mantra helps people show up better, differently, more intentionally for their family. You know, Jeff Woods, back to where we started the, the conversation, said something interesting to me on his podcast recently that we did together. He said, if you think about business relationships, you think about brands, those tend to be rubber balls. And if you drop them, they're going to bounce back. They may not bounce as high as you want, but they're going to bounce back. Your relationship with yourself, with your health, with your wife, with your husband, with your children, whatever it might be, relationships with people, 
those are often more like glass balls. And if you really drop it, they can crack. And it's so counterintuitive that those are the balls we often let go of first. And I think it's an interesting lesson to, to keep top of mind. Yeah, for sure. And you know, something that's been really helpful for me in just making these types of decisions, when do you choose what and how do you show up? For me, Craig, it was taking whatever situation it is and looking at it 10 years from now. What is the thing that I'm going to remember? Am I going to remember this business deal? Am I going to remember this? I had to show up and do this work, whatever the work is, like 10 years from now, am I even going to remember that? But what about that memory with the family? And is that going to be a lasting memory? And that really has been a guiding principle for me in a lot of the decisions I've made, uh, both work or you know travel. I'm, you know, I'm, let's say I'm super busy right now, but am I going to remember the busyness of this small little moment in life? Or am I going to remember that I didn't go on this amazing trip or meet these amazing people or spend time, you know, quality time with my family and maybe an exotic location. And so that has been a real good North Star for me as well. I love it. And to build on that point, I think one thing that I've learned, and it's actually a theme that comes out in the Dad Advice Project, is there's, there is a hybrid. So historically, personal life and professional life were kept very separate. And people were very intentional about that. What we've done with our family, and again, quite a few of the authors talk about it, is tried to find ways for work-life integration. So I'll give you a great example. Rex Curzius, one of the authors, super inspirational guy, he talks about how we give our kids exposure to sports and arts and crafts and music so that when they're in situations that require memory recall for those types of activities, they just jump in and they do it. But when it comes time to dad having or mom having a work conversation, we close the door so that our kids don't interrupt or hear what's going on. That makes no sense. Rex says, open the door, invite your kids to listen in on speakerphone when you're interviewing someone or to help you name a new product or business line. And now dinnertime conversations become richer and you've given your kids exposure to more sophisticated business type topics at an earlier age. And for us, you know, look, I realize we're very lucky because Top Golf's a unique business, but we take our kids to Top Golf all the time to try out new games and try the food and experience what other five year olds and three year olds are experiencing. And our kids are proud to be a part of that. And I think there are times when it doesn't have to be a this or a that, it can be a yes and. Yeah, I could not agree more, Craig. And like, I'll even just say this, like, I'm super guilty of this. You know, when I first started podcasting, I remember, you know, having my door closed, letting my family know, hey, by the way, I'm going to be recording. If you wouldn't mind being quiet, that would be wonderful. Although we all know how that goes, right? And, and I just remember like trying to be in this place where I wanted to control volume and I could hear kids running around in the house and footsteps and my daughter's friends are over and they're, I mean, literally just total pandemonium going on. Or sometimes she'd want to jump in and see what I'm doing and just, you know, take a look. And for a season, a small, short season, I was like, oh man, you know, I'm trying to control who comes in, who doesn't, when you can talk, when you can't. And that's exhausting. And I, I'm actually disappointed that I even took that direction because the moment I loosened up and just said, hey, I'm going to be recording now, 
feel free to carry on and my editor can edit stuff out and there might be stuff he can't edit and oh well, you know, people just kind of hear the real deal of what's going on. So my daughter will pop in periodically and it's just so much better. It's more fun. There aren't as many like walls and lines in what people can and can't do. And has also just kind of been a lot smoother on the family front so that my wife doesn't feel like she has to keep anyone quiet. So you're spot on when you say that there's this way that these worlds can collide. And we want to give our kids that exposure. I mean, I want my daughter to know about this. I know you want your kids to know about this. So great point. Awesome. So what are some other topics in the book that you think are really relevant that you would love people to know before even having a chance to get the book? I would summarize what I learned into two camps. The first is that there are themes that come up more often than any others and by a mile. And the themes are things like kids need to feel a sense of physical and psychological safety. They need to understand it's okay to take risks and fail. My wife's favorite is love your wife and make sure your kids see it because that's how they're going to learn how to treat women and have relationships down the line. That's powerful. And what what I find interesting about it is for some, when we talk about this, they go, well, okay, obvious. For others, they say, well, actually, it may be obvious, but the fact that those themes came up more than any others means we need to intentionally keep them top of mind. So that's the first set of lessons. The second are what I would call one-off, really cool, interesting tactical tips, some of which we've actually implemented with our three boys, and it's created just a really fun set of journeys in our family. And I think as the reader goes through and sees some of these tips and tricks, it'll be fun to experiment with some of these things and turn them into traditions for, for your own family. That's great. Yeah, as I think about some of the things that are in this book and some of the things that we've discussed, some of them are like obvious, like, yeah, you should do that. Yeah, you should love your spouse. But does that mean that we're doing it? I mean, sometimes I think that things work so well that you start to forget that you are doing them or how well they worked. I don't know if you're like me or if other guys are like me, but it's like, sometimes I'm like, when did I stop doing that? I used to be so good at that. All of a sudden, I'm not anymore. But that works so well. And now that I'm not doing it, (laughs) things aren't as good. So my wife read the book and I asked her for her takeaway. And she had a few. Her first was, this is a book about relationships. It's meant for men and women, even though it's called the Dad Advice Project. Fair enough. The second takeaway, though, for me was the really powerful one. And I think it hits on what you're describing. She said, Craig, when when I read mom blogs or books or articles on how to be a mom, nine times out of 10... After I finish reading, I feel like I'm less than or that I'm not living up to the mom that I should be. But what's interesting about this, and again, it hits on what you're saying, is I'd say half of the submissions, the guys talk about things they're screwing up and where they're going wrong. And at the end of it, you leave recognizing we're not perfect and they're not perfect. And it makes you want to be a better person because you realize what's possible. And Back to this idea of psychological safety, that's not true just for kids. That's true for adults too. And if you could find a way to let your guard down, take in advice from a bunch of other people and still feel psychologically safe and proud of who you are at the end, to me, that's a pretty magical recipe. Yeah. And your wife is spot on on this too, because when she says this is a book about relationships, 
this might be a relationship book about how you parent your kids or the relationship you have with your spouse. But that's also the same thing or as the things you should do in relationship with coworkers, in relationship with people that work under you, with you, vendors, contractors, you name it. And so many of these things, I see very successful businessmen, businesswomen as well, all the time. And this is more on the businessmen side, where they have these incredible relationships at work, but for some reason they get home and it's like leftovers and <laughs> they're irritable and they don't have the same just relationship IQ, emotional IQ at home as they do in the office. It is really kind of a mind boggling thing to me, but this is real. Like I see this often. Someone asked me once, what's the best piece of advice you've ever heard or gotten? And, and I go back to a story from, a, I think it was a documentary I saw. It was with Coach K from Duke Basketball. And, and someone said, all right, Coach, how do you do it? How do you take a random collection of players and win year in and year out? And he said, I'll tell you the answer, but it's not going to make sense. And the reporter said, well, try me. He said, well, I tell my guys to talk when they're tired. And the reporter said, you're right. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, look. Most coaches teach their teams that when they're towards the end of a game and the game's close and the team's tired to conserve energy. And the best way to conserve energy is to stop talking. He said, I feel the total opposite. He said, when you're anxious and you're down by two and you've got to come back with 90 seconds left, the only way to fight through and win is to talk when you're tired. And I find the exact same advice holds true in relationships, both in the workplace and at home. And I think because the incentives may be shorter term at work and they're right in front of us and we have reviews two or three times a year, it's easier to force yourself to talk when you're tired and work through challenges. But if you don't apply those same principles and approaches at home with your kids and your wife, man, what you described is one of the possible outcomes. And I also find that from personal experience, but also in coaching a lot of people is that when life on the home front is not strong, it does carry over to your professional life. And the stronger of a, a family unit that you can have and create and, and foster the strengthening of those relationships, the better it is in all the other compartments of life. And I'm sure that that's something that you've experienced. I'm sure that there are some dads that gave advice in your book on that too. You hit the nail on the head. Totally agree. So if there was one takeaway from this book that you've had, so you had the luxury of getting a chance to you know, read all this, put this together, put it in order, whatever makes the most sense. Is there something where you feel like, hey, this thing allowed me this idea, this concept, this thought process, this thing I took action on immediately and has had a profound impact on my family or on me or on loved ones? The answer may sound odd, but for me, I learned through this project that we're all trying really hard and we're all screwing it up. And when I realized that some of the dads I respected the most are going through things that maybe I never would have imagined, and the guys who seem like they didn't really have it together really have a lot of depth and richness to the way they parent, it was a very liberating thing. It made me realize there's, there is no perfect, just keep swimming, just keep trying, and you'll get there. 
I think that's my biggest takeaway. Yeah, that's cool. So is this something where you feel like, hey, I have written this book, you know, or I've assembled this book? Or do you see this as something where there's going to be volume two or there's going to be like, hey, at this age, yeah, we've got another version. I'm curious. I'm not that far in my thought process, to be honest. Here's what I'll tell you. It is so important to me and to the 42 authors in the book that this has an impact on dads and kids. In fact, about 30 of the 42 authors came to Dallas to my home for dinner last week to meet each other for the first time. And it was one of the most special nights we've ever had, I've ever had. And this was a topic of conversation. What next? What I know is that we have two goals for now, to make this book land and have an impact And the second is, you know, I grew up going to the Boys and Girls Club in San Diego. It's where I spent spring breaks and summers. And so I'm a proud supporter of the Boys and Girls Club. And if this thing lands, the Boys and Girls Club will be a a big beneficiary of it. Beyond that, time will tell. That's amazing. Well, I love when you can put something out in the world that the content. So for me, it was the same thing. I wanted the content to have value, but I wanted the proceeds to also be able to add value in terms of where it can be put to the best use. Totally. And I I love that you're doing that. I'm curious for you from the standpoint of like legacy, have you thought a lot about this or where does your mind go when you think about legacy for your family, legacy for what you're doing and and the footprint that you're going to have and leave on this world? I'm 35. I don't spend really any time thinking about legacy. What I do think a lot about is how to have an impact now, whether people remember that and tie it to me or my family. I have no idea. But the impact that I think about now is the world is still upside down, right? Whether it's COVID, whether it's the senseless killings of innocent, unfortunately, most commonly African-American men, whether it's persecution of minority groups across the country, the, the world at times is filled with hate. And I genuinely believe whether it's through project like the Dad Advice Project, whether it's through at Top Golf, our rally cry of creating moments that matter, if all of us can do just our small part to try and make the world a better place and a, and a more joyful place, mission accomplished. That's awesome. And I, I love your rally cry for Top Golf. In fact, that's something to me that has been important in all categories. So most certainly at work, but I actually think as just parents and as spouses and most certainly in the business world as professionals, making moments that matter and creating experiences for a lifetime, I think that's everything. And the more you can do that for professional working professionals, that often is easier done on the professional business side of things. And I don't know if that is second nature to people, but to me in a leadership role in many different businesses, that was like monumental in terms of like culture, retention and all that. I actually find that having moments that matter and creating experiences for a lifetime with your family is the most important thing you can do. And I just, I love really being intentional there. And I'm curious if that is something for you that has also kind of, uh, and I know your kids are young, but is that something that's already started to take root in the family? Totally. In fact, listening to you talk, it, it jogged a memory. My wife's company used to host a retreat uh, once a year and they'd fly in the spouses. And so I, I flew in for one of these company retreats and 
the company had organized a guest speaker. And the topic of the speech was interesting. It was effectively, if you have to spend money in life in order to get by, and we all do to buy groceries, keep the lights on, et cetera, what are the principles around spending money that will help you maximize happiness? And I took three things away from that speech. The first was give as opposed to just buying for yourself. The second was delayed consumption actually maximizes happiness. And the example was, if I buy a cookie and eat it now, I get some level of satisfaction. If I buy a cookie and wait until tomorrow to eat it, I actually get some satisfaction in the buildup to eating the cookie that I wouldn't have gotten if I ate it right away. And I'm still super stoked once I eat the cookie. So delayed consumption was the second. And then the third, without a doubt, is experiences over things. And I think those are three principles we refer back to from time to time. That's amazing. And I appreciate you sharing that. Wow, this has been awesome. Hey, Craig, I would like to know, and I'm sure our our listeners and, and those watching would just really enjoy knowing how they can get their hands on your book and how they can learn more and how they can take action. Absolutely. Simplest way, go on to Amazon. The Dad Advice Project is the name of the book. Two other things I'd say, check out the website, dadadviceproject.com. You'll see the background on the project and a blurb on each of the authors. And then the final thing I'd say is uh, the book comes out June 1st, just in time for Father's Day. If you buy a copy of the book and send us your receipt or send us a screenshot of your leaving a review on Amazon to gift at dadadviceproject.com, we're going to send you some behind-the-scenes footage of the authors from the Dad Advice Project being interviewed, and it'll just be one more uh, tool at your disposal to, to help on the parenting journey. That is really cool. I appreciate you sharing that with our audience here. And I just am so excited for what you're building and the impact that it's going to have. Do you have any last thoughts or comments that you want to share before we wrap things up? All good. I just really appreciate you having me on. And if anybody uh, in your listener base wants to reach out, they can do it through the website and happy to support however I can. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Craig. I've really enjoyed hanging out and learning more about what you've been up to here recently. And I just, I'm such a huge fan of you in general, of the organization that you help run, and of the impact that you are having and will continue to have on families. And I want to thank you from all of us for assembling this amazing list of co authors and putting these letters together because this is just fantastic and the world needs it. The world needs more of this type of content. So thank you. And I have one last message as I close things out here today. And it's the same thing I share to wrap up every message. And that is to take some form of action today towards financial freedom and towards living the life of your dreams, a life that is intentional that is created, not a life by default, but a life by design that is on your terms. We'll talk to you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.